Jonathan had started this as he made himself available to be used by the Lord in what looked like an impossible situation. But now we're going to see King Saul back in the middle of the action again, assuming control as a king, making two extremely foolish decisions that undermine and endanger the people he was supposed to be serving and leading. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I'm going to start at verse 23 and go through verse 46. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, for Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, The people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with them that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see 
how this sin has arisen today, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Unless you want to keep standing, that's quite a story. Let's sort through this. We see here the bitter results of foolishness. And that's compared to something else that is exactly the opposite and wonderful. In stark contrast to what we just read in verse 23 about the Lord saving Israel that day, Verse 24 is literally a slap in the face to what God had just done. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day because Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. In other words, the Israelites are said to be hard-pressed even after God had delivered the Philistines to them in this remarkable way in the initial battle when Jonathan and his armor-bearer climbed that cliff and attacked the Philistine outpost from more or less behind it. Why? Why were they said to be hard-pressed? What does that mean? Because Saul had issued this ridiculous edict or oath That's made clear in the text because you can translate that word for or because so doesn't quite work as well. They were hard-pressed, not because they were just tired. So the first question is, what does it mean when we read that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day? Hard-pressed is used of the... uh, oppression exerted from some authority over those under them. 
It's used in the Old Testament of the Egyptian overseers demanding a certain quota of bricks, remember? And even beating the Israelite foreman to maintain work output. It's used of the rulers who forcibly exact tribute from their subjects, especially in books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the prophets. And it's even used of a demanding boss. So it doesn't just mean the men were tired from chasing the Philistines all day. It actually goes way beyond that to focus on Saul's oppressive oath, which actually cost the Israelites, as Jonathan says, the decisive victory that was needed over the Philistines, which would have rid the land of this enemy in the central hill country of Canaan. So the second question we need to ask is, why did Saul do this? Can we discern what his motives were there? Because as you've noticed, we've gotten a lot of incredible insight already in this book into certain people's hearts that have been the main characters. Well, the first possibility is that Saul might have been concerned that the pursuit of the Philistines would stall if the Israelites had to stop and loot the enemy camp for food, etc., along their way as they chased them west. Something we may not all know is that soldiers in that day had to provide their own food. If this is what Saul was trying to do, Matthew Henry writes, and I'm going to translate some of the big words I had to, (coughs) then it was unwise or impolitic. If it gained time, it lost strength for the pursuit. It was also oppressively arrogant or imperious. For to forbid them to feast would have been commendable, but to forbid them to so much as taste food, though they were so hungry, was just plain barbarous. It was irreverent or impious to enforce the prohibition with a curse and an oath. The question is, didn't he have a penalty less than an anathema pronouncing on his people, which is a curse, by means of which to support his military discipline? Can you see that? So really, what Matthew Henry is saying is that this was unwise. It was oppressively arrogant of him, and it was irreverent. So... A better possibility to really explain this, and that might have been part of Saul's motivation, but really it goes deeper than that, is seen as we realize that ever since Samuel rebuked Saul for his improper offering and not waiting for Samuel to come and provide God's direction ever since that event, Saul, if you've noticed, is becoming more and more committed to religious observance. 
even while his heart was visibly harder and becoming even more and more reckless. Earlier here in chapter 14, Saul had sought divine guidance after Jonathan's attack. But then we read some strange verses probably to most of us. Verses 18 and 19, right in there, chapter 14. When he cut the priests off from trying to discern God's will, told them to remove their hand, which means stop doing what you're doing. And he did that because God hadn't answered him. God was silent to Saul. And then now he ordered his troops to fast during an incredible hand-to-hand combat battle all day long. So was he trying to get the Lord's favor again since God was presently silent by doing what? Performing these religious exercises. Doesn't sound like any of us, does it? He went over the top. And you could actually describe this as in some kind of warped pharisaical demonstration. And he wanted to look good to his people who had very serious and uh, important questions about his leadership or lack of his spiritual leadership especially. The rest of our passage in chapter 14 is really a commentary on this question about what Saul was doing and why. Now maybe this will help too. After Jonathan's initial attack upon that Philistine outpost, when God literally had an earthquake and the whole this whole army was fighting against each other, running in panic in every direction, they ended up kind of being herded to the west as Saul and his guys started chasing him along with Jonathan and the men that came to the scene from where Jonathan was and then all the people that were with the Philistines and all the people that were finally climbing out of their hiding places. All day long, 20 miles to the city that's mentioned in our text. 20 miles through the hill country. This is not the plains of the panhandle. This is more like where the canyons are going through the hill country. Rough country without food, all day long. And that helps us understand why this contrast is so great. Remember that the main literary feature of this chapter is the stark contrast between the Lord's blessing on Jonathan's service, humble service, and the hardship brought on everybody by Saul's foolish vow and lack of godly leadership. So, the word of Saul's harsh edict spread throughout the Israelite force. But Jonathan never got it. 
doesn't tell us why, but since he was the first man that did anything, he was probably beyond the scope of where the word got to. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eye became bright. Then he hears of Saul's edict. The most revealing part of this whole passage is verse 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. Which is what? It's revealing because this is Jonathan's commentary on what happened. It's not just this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's Jonathan's comments on it. And we read this. Then Jonathan said, here we go. My father has troubled the land. Which can also be rendered, brought trouble to the land. See how my eyes have become bright just because I tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Right off the bat, we should notice something. Who cared about the soldiers, about the people fighting? It's obvious. Troubled the land. One writes, this was a provocative statement. May not hit us that hard, but it is provocative. Because it's the same terminology used previously in the, in the trouble on Israel by the sins of somebody named Achan in the book of Joshua. It's used for an individual whose sin causes Israel to lose God's blessing. In the book of Joshua, Achan brought trouble on Israel by the sins of stealing consecrated items from the ruin of Jericho in Joshua 7. Jonathan, who surely knew his father's heart and motives well, as we've already seen, plainly stated that his father's sin and foolishness were hindering Israel from enjoying God's full blessings in battle. That's the point. This was the practical effect of Saul's oath, for the people were faint, verse 28. As a spiritual leader then, Saul erred by requiring more of God's people than God himself had asked. Which Saul did by what? Demanding a fast throughout the whole battle during the day. Moreover, Saul's unbiblical requirements resulted in unintended evils. And we'll look at those shortly. Saul's unbiblical requirement resulted in unintended evils as 
any extra biblical requirements have a tendency to do. Speaking of unintended evils, the next thing we read in verses 31 through 35 here is that the people were so famished in their 20-mile pursuit of the Philistines through very rough hill country on that day that when evening came and that edict was over, they, what do we read? Pounced on, rushed to the spoil, slaughtering sheep, oxen, calves, and then eating them with the blood. Now, what's that a picture of? Somebody who needs a snack? This was the problem because the Israelites were prohibited by the law of Moses from eating meat that had not been drained, that had been drained of the blood, that had not been drained of the blood. They couldn't eat meat with the blood. Since the blood of an animal was the part that made atonement in the sacrifices. This news, of course, gets back to Saul. And here, if we're right about what his real motives are, we would see exactly this happening. Who then tries some damage control by another outward show of religion and his own spiritual worthiness. What does he do? He declares the soldiers had acted treacherously, condemning them, and and he says that they've been unfaithful. And then he made everyone bring his animal to be slaughtered on a huge stone that he had moved into their camp. He never did connect the dots that he was the one who drove his men to these desperate measures because of his foolish eating during battle edict. This is not an argument that says all the men had a right to eat it all with the blood still in it. What we're saying is that Saul, by his action, caused the men, the people fighting this battle, to be driven to this ravenous state because of his foolish edict. In fact, you can kind of see here as you read this account that Saul was so pleased with the way he fixed this problem, he thought, which was outward religious observance, that he then built an altar to the Lord. And you kind of read that next phrase then, like what? Kind of suggestively saying, yeah, and this is the first altar that Saul ever built. Not as a compliment. And this stone that he's using was probably the same stone on which the animals had been slaughtered that he used to start building this little monument. Did Saul ever show any sign of his own need to repent of his own sin in all of this? He didn't grieve over his own sin because he didn't see any sin to be concerned about except everyone else's. Again, sounds just like me, sounds just like you. This is what sin does. And as so often the case, Saul was only concerned about their sin because it directly affected how he felt about his own leadership and his own interest in being a really successful king. In other words, his own selfish motive to succeed at all costs 
and be the deliverer and be looked at as their great leader and spiritual guide seemed to be in peril because his men were now thoroughly exhausted and only interested in filling their famished bodies. So he provided this immediate fix. Slaughter, drain the blood, eat, built an altar, assume control of something that Jonathan's faith actually started, not his. That was hanging over his head. Saul was the king that God had given the job of getting rid of the Philistines. He delayed a year. He didn't wait for Samuel. Samuel left with God's guidance because Samuel was God's prophet. Saul starts taking things into his own hands. He knows. Why does he know? Because he knows that his people knew. Imagine that. But Saul doesn't stop there. This keeps going. Next, we see him come up with a grand plan to attack the fleeing Philistines all through the night. Verses 36 and 37. Notice that this plan is sort of opposite of the one he had earlier in the day. Earlier, the Israelites must not eat lest their plundering make them stop the pursuit. And now Saul lays out the chance to plunder, at will even, to motivate them to continue assaulting during the rest of the night. Does that strike you as a little strange? Very wise of Saul, the commander-in-chief. Huh. Now he says, hey, Chase them all night long. Take anything you can get your hands on. Eat at will. Take it for your own. And he's using that as motivation. What's telling here is the response of his men and then of the priest. Which, if you're reading through the Bible in a year and you zip through the Old Testament because, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense, you miss this. You can't go fast right here. What did his men say? Is it a hearty, do whatever seems good to you, Saul. We're behind you. Uh, No, it's like, do whatever seems good to you. And the priest even picks up on this. And the priest, remember, is the rejected priest that's still operating because Saul wants to do the religious thing now and look good. Something, something's wrong here, isn't it? Well, let's before we get to what the priest says, let's just take what his men said and compare that to Jonathan's armor bearer's response to Jonathan's plan. Remember what he said? Do whatever. No, he said do all that is in your heart. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. Do all that is in your heart. In other words, what's he saying? I'm with you. Live or die. You're trusting God with this. I'm with you. I'm I'm with you. And was he? Oh, yeah. Saul wants to lead, but this lack of deep convictions is mirrored in the men that he wants to lead. You can tell they're not really enthused with this 
grand plan of the night attack. They will follow him, but as any leader knows, the death knell for that is they're going to follow him with very little conviction. Saul will never hear the words that were eagerly spoken to his son Jonathan. Never. And that should really hit us hard. Anybody that is in any kind of leadership or authority knows what it's like to look out and look back and they're there, sort of, following. Or that when you do ask them, they're like, okay. Then the priest said, right after this, let us draw near to God here. What is he saying? That's priest political speak for what? Uh, This is not a great idea. You've already got the whole army against you. You can tell if you just listen, Saul. And what we need to do is, even though we're both in this for ourselves probably and not really the real thing, but we we need to draw near to God here. In other words, even he is almost fearful enough now and respectful knowing that God is is communicating something really, really important that we, we need to ask him, don't we, before we do this again. Maybe he'll answer this time, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, even this priest was casting doubt over Saul's plan to keep attacking through the night. So, after building an altar to God and squelching the sin of the soldiers... Saul must have thought that he'd finally gotten God's approval. He was doing the right thing again. But what do we read in verse 37? But God did not answer him that day. There in front of all of his people, God would not answer the priest or the king. He put it out there. God did not answer. They had no godly yes to go on through the night. And they had uh, learned some lessons in their history when they first came into the land about proceeding when God had not led them to. Hadn't they? See, this is where you keep the the details of the whole biblical record before this in view as you think about the context. So there in front of all the people, God would not answer the priest or king, and that equals failure. His conclusion, what did Saul do? He had to provide some reason for this failure. Got to give the people some answer here. So in verse 38 and following, there had to be sin in the camp. That's the reason. We've seen that in our history. Keeping him from hearing and knowing God's leading. We know who the sin was with. It was with him. He doesn't get it. 
So he then called for the casting of lots and uttered another arrogant command and oath. Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saved Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. He had no clue. The last thing he could possibly imagine that Jonathan had been the one that had not followed his edict. But there was... Not a man among all the people who answered him. Can you hear that quiet? It's deafening. The process of elimination continued until only Jonathan was left. Yes, Jonathan. Saul's plan was foiled again. The people were exonerated, but now he had to cast lots between Jonathan and himself. And as we would expect, Jonathan told the story of his heinous crime. In verse 43, I tasted a little honey. With the end of the staff I was carrying, I'm ready to die. Again, what do we see in Jonathan's faith? Honest, humble, willing to what? be under an oppressive, not just king, but his own father. You'd think Saul would have finished uttering oaths by this time, but no, he says in verse 44, Saul declared to him, May God punish me and do so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. So what happens in verse 45 and 46? The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Can you, can you guys picture this? This is the whole army. Every person that had climbed out of a hole, they were all gathered in one place. Who has worked this great salvation in Israel, even though the word had spread after Jonathan's first attack on the garrison a chapter or so back, and today the word had spread, they knew who the real faithful soldier was. Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. I, I read that, and what's my first thought, as off as I am, is well, what would they have done if he pulled his sword and gone after him right there? I, I think Saul would have seen the end of his days. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. What an ending to this little episode. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines just went back. Their cities were on the coast. Hill country where they were fighting, coast. They had come into the hill country. They're going back now to their main cities along the Mediterranean. And we have relative peace for a while until we pretty much, well, there's going to be some more, but we especially see him doing what when a, a certain giant comes on the scene and the armies face off again with a young man God raises up. You know, there's not one person sitting here this morning who's not thinking that Jonathan is the one who should be king, right? 
How tragic. But Jonathan will never get that opportunity because he's already been rejected as king since, his, since Saul's dynasty has been rejected. Got that? As we learned back in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And so all of us are asking questions like, well, why? Why couldn't Jonathan have been king instead of Saul? Why does Jonathan only get to be the John the Baptist of the Old Testament to David? Why did Jonathan have to be eliminated? Why must Jonathan's opportunities be squelched by Saul's choices? What do you suppose God is doing here? Why does God's word say it this way? Why does God work this way? Why are we meeting God's unsuccessful ways again? Unsuccessful in quotation marks. Why this waste? These are normal questions, but you know what? They're very telling. Since they reveal that we are way too much a part of the thinking of the 21st century culture that we're a part of. This thinking is not new. It has been around since day one. But we're in it, and that's the way we think. In most of our minds, we really do believe that self-fulfillment is a right. Every one of us, it's in there somewhere. Many Christians morph that or twist that into a belief that self-fulfillment is a God-given right. If we've got ingenuity and discipline, our efforts should be crowned with success. If we're a religious bent, which most of us are, We happily acknowledge that God or Jesus assists us in our quest. It's his duty. We can always use such help from God. But Jonathan seems to know better, doesn't he? And we have to ask this question, and it's a great way to close a service when we're here to worship the Lord God Almighty. And what is it? What does Jonathan know that we need to know? The kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan's. It was God's kingdom. For Jonathan, then, the kingdom was not his to seize. It was not his to rule, but his to serve. It was his to serve. 
We need to get this. Situation is different. God called this group of people to be his people in a theocracy where he was the king. When they demanded a king, he gave them what they wanted. But he, in his unbelievable providence and sovereignty in the big picture, uses that to start again, keep the line going through a king now, David's family coming up, not Saul's, where the Messiah king would be the one to rule the final kingdom of God. But see, all this is in work now here. Paul explains it like how we are citizens first and foremost of God's kingdom. So this attitude, this is not a be like Jonathan thing. This is a see why Jonathan was faithful and compare that to Saul and see that Jonathan was there to serve even if it meant what? Playing second fiddle. He was in one sense sort of like John the Baptist. And he was okay with that. He was more than okay with that. He is faithful to the end with every friend that he has. And you can't do that by mustering it up on your own strength. You have to do it by knowing who you serve. And it's God Almighty. And so wherever you are, you serve him. Faithfully in the power of his spirit which he has given us. The rest of this remarkable book is really, it will continue to flesh out this point over and over and over again. Where hopefully it will become a part of us, more a part of us. Maybe a tragic life isn't really tragic. if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. Yeah, that's a big if, but let me read the whole thing again. Let me say that again. Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic like we would usually define it. If it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what what a lesson in your word. What a picture of your grace in your people. What a picture of what it means that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, God, we, we humbly come before you now and ask that you would work through this your church with Christ as the head to give us hearts that will be lived in fidelity to you and the lives that you've called us to to proclaim your gospel to stir one another up to love and good deeds and a grateful heart 
knowing that we deserve your condemnation because of our sin, but Christ took it upon himself instead as your son who lived the perfect life for us. Oh, God, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our our benediction? The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dismissed.